Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Take chances. Stick your neck out. You can't lose something you don't have. And once you look at it that way, it changes the way you approach everything. It changes the way you approach directing. It changes the way you approach getting jobs. It changes the way you approach life. That, of course, is the voice of George Clooney, who joined me to discuss his new movie, The Midnight Sky, based on the novel Good Morning Midnight by Lily Brooks Dalton. The film is about the aftermath of a global catastrophe and a lone scientist in the Arctic racing to contact a crew of astronauts and warn them not to return to Earth. It had such a profound impact on me. The themes of isolation, vulnerability, our human bonds. It's all so powerful and so resonant in this moment in time. The Academy Award winner directs, produces, and also stars. And in this conversation, he talks about what drew him to the story. And he reflects back on his extraordinary career, to the moment when ER made him a household name, to the films that made him want to be a director, to how becoming a family man has impacted his choices. So sit back and enjoy. Here is George Clooney. George Clooney, it's so awesome to see you. And thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. Thank you. And I'm just going to get right into it. And I want to know about... What spoke to you about this film and this character that you wanted to make it, that you had this sense of urgency to to make this film? Well, you know, when I read the script, first of all, as you, you know, you probably know, there aren't really all that many good scripts out. Uh, it, it is a funny thing. People think that you just have the, your pick of scripts and you'll just find great stuff. And the truth of the matter is, by the end of the year, when you're looking at best pictures, there are aren't all that many and it's it's hard to find a really good script this was a great script and it was a story i thought about redemption in a way that you know i, I kind of look at clint when he did unforgiven in a way where it's sort of coming to terms with aging and coming to terms with the world in the in the uh in this in the place and the way that we are and the um at the time you know there was no pandemic but we were still dealing with ideas of hatred and anger. And if you play that out over a 20 year period of time, it's not inconceivable that we end up in the same place that we are in this film. So I thought those were really interesting um, themes to address. And I really love the idea of, um, you know, of the challenge of space and, uh, and the Arctic. I thought that those were taking on two of the more difficult things to do in one film. And I, and I just, you know, for whatever reason, you know, when I first read it, I thought, well, it's a great part for me. I felt like there's probably not a whole lot of people uh, at this age who could play the part. You know, there aren't that many actors who are right for this one. And I was, so I thought, okay, well, that's good. 
And then, you know, I had a take on the movie. I had a point of view that I thought would be interesting. And I didn't want it to ever fall into being uh, a teaching moment or preachy. I thought it was just a story of redemption. And, uh, and I always liked stories of redemption. And also, by the way, as a, as a character, whenever you have a kid with you, that you're looking out for. I, I played a pediatrician on ER, you know, and I was an alcoholic and I was a womanizer, but I would always take care of kids and people like, oh, well, he likes kids. So as long as you're nice to kids, you can kind of be grumpy and do anything you want. Um, it's a bit of a free pass. And I, so I thought it gave me a, a, a thing to be able to do with like my character that I thought would be fun. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that struck me about this movie is that, for one, it's set in 2049, which feels like in our lifetime. It's not in this fantasy world of, you know, 200 years from now. And also that it was this, the silence and the vastness of it for, for a lot of it. And usually when you're watching a film kind of about that's dealing with the end of the world, it's explosive and loud and you're on earth and it's just chaotic. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it was interesting when we got, when I got the script and we started to work on it, you realize that the stuff that I'm doing with the little girl in particular, um, she doesn't speak. So I don't need to speak. You know, you you get to a point. So we were, we cut, I don't know about, 80 or 90 lines of dialogue between myself and the little girl. Cause if she's not going to answer, why am I talking to her? It, it could be just exposition then and you don't need it. And it felt to me that it, it's, this is more of a meditation in a way of, uh, of loneliness and of loss. And when we're having such a difficult time between earth and our future, which is this, this spaceship and our inability to communicate feels very much like the things that we're going through and that we have been going through for you know quite some time actually uh, more and more not just politically socially you know we we isolate ourselves on you know on these things you know we get on the phone and uh, you know when I was a young kid when we went to the beach you took a boom box <laughs> with you you put it down and you're gonna play yeah. you know. Um, uh, you know, who, you, the Rolling Stones and everybody in, around you on that beach was going to be listening to the Rolling Stones. And sometimes somebody would show up with Cool in the Gang and we're all listening to Cool in the Gang. Um, but now we all put in our earplugs and we listen to our own world and we're all completely isolated in this world. You know, when someone falls into the, the, um, the subway our instincts aren't all of us to jump into the, you know, onto the tracks and pull them out. Our in- instinct is to pull out our camera and get a shot. You know, again, it's, we, we, we're losing this set sense of community. I mean, I, I was in a pretty bad motorcycle accident and I remember very vividly cause I thought I was going to die. I'd cracked my head through this guy's windshield and this is in Sardinia a couple of years ago. And I sort of know when you hit a guy at 70 miles an hour that you're in trouble. And I'll never forget the feeling of laying on the ground and having everyone realize who was on the ground and having them all pull out camera and videotape, you know, or tape videotape, I'm 90 years old, and, and shoot me with their camera and remembering how isolating that was. And so I thought that this is sort of a natural result of that is this sort of this, the, the, you know, if you play this forward, 
you know, we, we get into our own worlds and we stop caring about one another and looking out for one another. And it's very conceivable that we could do all of these things to earth and to ourselves. And I thought that it's an interesting thing to take out all of the sound and have it just be about emotion. You know, the, the characters, there's long moments of just, you know, sitting with a child and watching her look at Polaris for the first time, you know, and things that, uh, that I did with my parents that I don't think we necessarily see anymore. Mm-hmm. So I liked, I liked the idea of, of silence and all of this. I, you know, you know, we, we have action in the film. I don't want people to think it's just a, you know, a long, slow drag. Um, and there's a lot of things that are really funny and sweet in it, but there is a, you know, they're earned. I think you have to earn them by, um, by fighting with all of your other demons along the way. Well, I think it's stunning to watch this film in right now with what we're going through because you, to to your point, talking about that isolation, there's this odd community that we are literally in a global pandemic and everyone is feeling this loss and the loss of whatever normal life is, the loss of life. The You know, while we're feeling this and dealing with this, we're watching the fires and the hurricanes, mm-hmm. this extreme yeah. weather that just seems to be happening on such a regular basis. It's so hard to even process that that becomes our new reality. So being in the well, audience, yeah. it was just kind of stunning. I had these waves of, of real emotion come over me about the thought that this is not that unconceivable on any of the levels. No, it shouldn't. It, it shouldn't be. And that's the danger of it all is, you know, when we have um, when we're in a world where scandal becomes a daily event then scandal becomes less and less and less and less interesting. And or, or outrageous or infuriating um, in the world where fires are a natural thing and hurricanes are happening every single day. Suddenly that just becomes, well, that's just how it is. When, of course, that doesn't have to be how it is. And uh, and it doesn't require just cleaning up the fauna on the floor of the forest to take care of it. It's, you know, we're heating up and we're not paying attention. And we have so many people who have so, you know, they have great interest in us not being aware or involved and numb to these things. And the number we get, the easier it is for all of these things to just get worse and worse and worse until the next tragedy happens, you know, and then it's horrible. And Oh my God, we'll never see anything like that again. And then it becomes the normal, the next normal, you know, I, when we were doing the film, there was no thought of a pandemic. We, we wrapped, I think the day that a couple of days after, um, they, they'd shut everything down. We just, just began to hurt, to hear about this idea of a pandemic and it was in February and we got to LA to start editing. We were in the editing room and uh, you know, the news came on and said, okay, we're going to, everybody's got to go home from work and, you know, don't worry though. It's really only going to affect older people. And I was with Grant, my buddy of mm-hmm. 39 years, who's my partner and, uh, in, in all the projects I work on. And we looked at each other like, well, it's only going to affect older people. And they go, yeah, from 55 up. And I was like, what? Wait, I'm the older person. Holy crap. So I, uh, it suddenly became very personal to me. Uh, but, you know, we've been doing this trend of, of caring about 
I grew up in the 60s. We paid attention to all these other events, civil rights and women's rights and the Vietnam War. And slowly over a period of time, I think kind of starting after Watergate, we we moved our, our circle smaller and smaller and smaller instead of just we just worried about the country or we worried about the state or we worried about our city or a town. And it's gotten to just our doorstep and we vote how it affects just our doorstep and how it affects just our family or just our. And, you know, you understand it because everybody's trying to just get through the day. But we're forgetting that if you don't look at these bigger issues and, 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 and take them on and don't have leadership that asks you to, then, then those, those, all of those things are going to eventually affect our doorstep. You know, climate change is going to affect our doorstep. Anger and hatred is going to come home to roost, you know. So we need to constantly find a way to, to remind ourselves that we're all in this together. And, uh, and I think that a film like this always points, points to the idea because there is redemption in this film. And that was what was really important to me is that, that it is a search for redemption. Ultimately, that's what it is. And it's also a, a, a reminding ourselves of the actual core strength of mankind and how hard we actually will fight to, to, to stay alive, you know, and how important it really is. You know, the idea that we, none of us get out of this thing alive, but maybe as a group, we get out of it intact. And I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Well, this is your seventh movie film that you've directed, Mm. right? So (laughs) what is also uh, very different about this film is the scale this yeah. is much different than any other film you've directed, mm-hmm. just in terms of that alone. So I want you to talk about, like, what was the stuff that excited you about taking this on? Because there is enormous scale and, like you said, a lot of action in it as well. But what excited you and then what kept you up at night? <laughs> well, I was excited about all of it because I thought, you know, this is – I mean, I remember – sending the script to Soderbergh and he was like, I wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot ball, you know, um, because he loved the script, but he just said, this is, you know, you're shooting, you know, the Revenant and gravity. That's sort of the way everybody puts it. But the truth was it is the elements I knew were going to be tough. I'd done perfect storm. I'd worked in some pretty rough elements before. Um, uh, even the American, we had some pretty tough elements to work in at times. Uh, I knew that that was going to be, tricky and complicated um space i'd done gravity and solaris so i had a real understanding of what those complications were there's a great advantage having done solaris much more intimate story which was helpful uh for for the space stuff um gravity incredibly helpful for the 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 scale because the, the most intimidating thing, like when we were doing Gravity, Alfonso was doing stuff that hadn't yet been invented. We had to wait for the technology to catch up. We shot some stuff a year later when the technology finally caught up. Well, the technology is caught up and it's actually much better than it was even then, which simplified some stuff for us, uh, complicated some other things. But, um, but I, was ex- I was terrified of the scale because scale is terrifying. You know, you're, you're going to go in and say, you know, let's do this, you know, film and we're shooting on 65. So it's, you know, it's 
gigantic scale. And, and we're going to, you know, we're doing handheld shots with a 65 millimeter lens. You know, it's like everything is, is bigger. Everything was large and, and trying not to copy anybody else is hard because some people have done it really well. Gravity's done pretty damn well. Um, so trying to reinvent things like the, the blood sequence mm-hmm. with, uh, with Maya, um, you know, I'd never seen that in film uh, in the script. She runs out of air and we'd seen that in gravity. So I thought, well, let's, let's have her bleed. And then I looked at some old footage of, uh, astronauts in space and they would pour water out into the air and then they drink it out of the air. And I thought that I wanted the blood to be that, but I wanted it to be poetic. And it's a really interesting thing when you go to the, the, the visual effects guys and you go, I need this blood to move like a ballet in a wild way and to have them come up with it, which was, I mean, it was spectacular what they did. I mean, really spectacular. So there were tons of things that are intimidating because it, you know, I'm very, it, for me, it's really easy when I can see something like I can look at this and go, okay, we'll move that there and we'll fix this problem. Um, but to have to have pre-visited it with this, you know, we're using the VR thing where I've got a, I've got a monitor in my hand, which is acting as if it's the camera. I've got a VR. So I'm actually standing on the ship, but I'm really, you know, in a, in, in a gymnasium and everywhere I move, the 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 camera that I'm holding changes the view. I set shots like, okay, here's where we are on the ship now, and here's where we'll be on the ship now. And there's a monitor back there where they're recording which shots I'm going to use. I mean, you know, if you sat back and watched it, it's insanity. You know what we're <laughs> trying to do. It really looks like insanity, well, but it was fun. It was it was exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you you talked a little bit about this early or about your co-star uh, because she pronounced her name for me because it, it's spelled interesting. Kaylin. Kaylin. Okay. It's just Kaylin. Okay. It's spelled, it's, the Irish, I'm Irish. They spell weird names. <laughs> okay. There's sometimes you'll be like, there's a, sometimes Kaylin will actually have an F in it. And you'll be like, that's Kaylin. Okay. I understand. Well, Kaylin, Kaylin. yeah, she's extraordinary. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. She really screws it up for all the other actors too. Because almost everything I did with her was one take. <laughs> and she'd never acted before. And she's brilliant, brilliant in the film. And I would go, okay, now you're going to be running away from the pod and I need you to turn back with your scary, sad face. And she'd run back, turn back and like, <gasps> and do this scary, sad face. And it was brilliant. And, you know, it ruins it for the rest of us who have to pretend that, we, you know, we have to, go through all this process before we can do that's exactly right. And, you know, she's just like, Oh, you just want a scary, sad face. I can do that. <laughs> she, she did everything. But she, she's um, there's, there's something about her eyes and, you know, I having been on ER and be play a pediatrician, I worked with a lot of kid actors, you know, and the issue with kid actors is that they are sort of trained by their parents on, how to respond. So they're kind of responding before you even ask the question. They're a little ahead of it. They're very professional. And she just listens. She just look at you and I'd be talking and I go, you know, can you breathe now? And she would look at me and then take a pause and then shake her head. Like she took a breath and yeah, I can breathe. So she was, you know, she reacted in a moment in the way that the best actors do. 
I mean, I just think it's a phenomenal performance mm-hmm. by her. Mm-hmm. You you also have a pretty stellar cast uh, yeah. up in space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. I'm just going to go through them a little bit. So you have Felicity Jones, David Oyelio, uh, Damian Bashir, uh, and obviously Kyle. Tiffany Yeah, Tiffany Kyle Chandler. And Kyle Chandler, who, uh, and they all deliver. They all deliver. Kyle breaks your heart. You know, the the two characters of Kyle and Damian were written to be much, much, much younger. Um, One was Russian, even, I think. And I kept thinking that, if we're going to send them the way, the direction that we send them, I wanted them to be like the two old men, old Muppets in the balcony, you know, <laughs> the two old guys who are always like, <laughs> okay, you know, grumpy old men so that we, we love them. And so that there was some history to, to the decisions they have to make down the line. And there's some weight to it. And they're just both Demian and Kyle are just such beautiful actors and, you know, we're all kind of, I'm a little older than both of them, but we're kind of the same generation and we've been around together. I've seen them at different auditions and events. And uh, Demi and I were both nominated for an Oscar one year together and spent a lot of time on that sort of Oscar circuit and got to know them. And they're, they're just gentle, you know, smart actors who the reason they're still around is that they're so good and they're such good guys. David is just elegant. There's no other way to put it. There's a, there's a quality that David has that the minute you put the camera on him, the camera demands you stay on him. And I don't know how to define um, a, a star, but you know it when you see it. And David is that, you know, there's a, um, uh, uh, Tiffany absolutely lights up the screen. There's a, there's nothing she won't try. There's nothing she can't do. And the world for her is just beginning, just opening up. And I think she's going to be, I think she's going to be a, a major force to contend with for years. I hope she does more. I hope she directs and writes and does all the other things too, because she has a, an interest and a mind for it. And, and I think that's great. And honestly, Felicity there's never a word that comes out of her mouth that you don't believe. You know, every thing, every time she speaks, um, I believe it. And that's not a given with actors and also just lovely to work with, you know, and of course she called me. At, I think we were, we shot all my stuff first, you know, um, all of the, my end of it first. And then we took a break and went away for Christmas and came back and started the space stuff. And about halfway into shooting my stuff, she called me and said, oh, uh, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And, you know, there's the polite answer, which is, hey, congratulations. And then there's that long pause of like, what are we going to do? Because it really changed everything. So we tried to shoot her as a head replacement, you know. So we shot every scene three times and with the body double and all that. And the truth was it didn't work. And it sort of slowed the production down and took the life out of it, which we needed. We needed this emotional life. And it was hard on the other actors. It was hard on her, hard on me, quite honestly. And so I went home one night while we were in Iceland and I mean, when we were in uh, England and I I just called her up and said, you know, people have gone away for two years. 
they have sex, you know, they used to do it in the back of a, you know, a Volkswagen in 1950. So they do it in a, in a spaceship in 2049 and you got pregnant. And once we sort of adapted to that, you know, one of the acting, one of the things I was taught in acting was improvisation and part of improvisation is called yes. And you never say no. If you say no, you go, you know, there's a, you know, well, there's a horse in the kitchen. If you go, no, no, there isn't. Then the improv is over. Right? You can't keep going. But if you go, well, the horse, not only is there a horse, but there's a cow that's coming in. Keep the improv going. So this was an improvisation. And it meant that we had to go, okay, if she's pregnant, then what are the obstacles and what does it mean? And wh- how do we use this to our benefit? And I feel like, I, and I think people who see the film feel as if, it's, it, it wouldn't have worked without her being pregnant now. It's a continuum that we didn't know we necessarily needed when we were started shooting the film, but it sure feels organic now. Mm-hmm. Definitely. You've spent the better part of your adult life on a set. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, what is your favorite part of that day when you arrive as a director and then when you arrive as an actor? Arriving is fun. You know, I... Uh, you know, so I started out as an actor and remember, you know, I cut tobacco for a living in Kentucky. So just getting onto a set, is just magical, right? Because there's all these people working to try to do the same thing, all these different unions, all these different, you know, 150 people, all they're focused on trying to make one thing work, a scene today work. And, uh, and the idea, you know, like I always said, I, you know, I grew up in Kentucky, you know, we try to stay out of trailers. I, I literally, I would never spend a day in my trailer. I was always on the set because sets are magical. I love and have always gotten along and always had a great time with the crew because they're all craftsmen, you know, uh, even if they don't look like it, they're craftsmen and they have a, they have great pride in their work. Go to the dailies after in the old days, when you'd shoot a movie the next day, you'd go into a room and watch dailies from the day before and watch the focus puller, watch the film. It could be the greatest scene. All the actors are crying and everything's perfect. And then, and the focus puller is like, this is a piece of crap because of the, because it was a soft focus, you know, they're all craftsmen. So my favorite part is just walking on that more in the morning um, as an actor walking on and uh, working with a director and the other actors into figuring out how you make this puzzle work, because it's a puzzle always. What you read on the script never is how it actually works. There's always something that, you know, Rome burns and you got to figure out how to make Rome burn. And then as a director, it's figuring out how to get all of these people, all of these different groups to do what your vision is, which is also really fun. You have to manipulate people a little bit. You know, actors are manipulative, first of all, because every actor wants the scene. You know, they have an idea of how the scene's going to work. I know what I'm going to do. I've got a plan. And then the director comes in and they got a plan. And so, the you know, I'm trying to manipulate the act. If I'm directing, I'm trying to manipulate the actor into doing what I need them to do. The actor's trying to manipulate me into letting them do what they want. I have the ultimate say as a director because I also know, you know, you, you think, well, this is really sad. The kid died and I'm going to cry here. And I'm like, you're going to cry in three, three scenes from now and, I'd re- and it'll matter more there. But, then, but, but I wouldn't, how could I not, you know, you just have to trust me. Um, but 
but both of them that honestly, just the idea that I get to walk onto a set where, you know, on this one, you know, it was 250 people look over and say, so where, where are we going? Where are you putting the camera? What are we doing? And coming in, you know, I am always, I'm always over planned. I'm, I, I try to be, I have shots of, I, I have drawings of every single shot for the day so that we, we can work efficiently. Um, but you know, it, it is an exciting thing to, to, to watch it sort of come together as a music, as a piece of music. When Alexander Desplat, who's the, who's the composer, I'll go to Abbey Road and he'll, he'll have all the music written out and it's the London Symphony Orchestra there. It's 150 people. And they talk a language we don't understand, you and I. It's like, you know, in the half measure there and, you know, off a beat here and a little more timpani, guys. And then all of a sudden, he's got, he just lifts up his arms and suddenly it's just a score. It's music. And that's kind of what it's like when you're directing, when it works. You know, mm-hmm. when everything's working, when the script works, when the actors understand what their role is. And when we're all in it together, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful moment, you know? Hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, you just reminded me of how great the, the music is in it as well. Oh (laughs) yeah. It's tricky this time because of COVID. Um, Alexander Desplat was, was conducting from Paris because he couldn't get into London we had the orchestra playing 15 instruments at a time at Abbey road in London. And Grant and I were watching it back here in LA at four in the morning, you know? Uh, so it was a long, tedious process to get the music together, but boy, it was really exciting and fun. Mm-hmm. You've had so much success uh, business wise and creatively in partnerships. And you've mentioned a few of them here with Soderbergh and obviously with Grant Hesloff. And I think of you and Matt Damon, uh, Brad Pitt. It goes on. Don Cheadle. You know, you you work with a lot of the same people and uh, obviously with Casamigas and all that uh, success (laughs) there. I drink it all the time. uh, Me too. More more now than lately. What do you get from that partnership? What's the foundation of those successes for you? Well, I mean... First and foremost, it's a learning experience always. You know, I partnered with Stephen and Stephen basically was my educator on film, on, on how to shoot. Shoot with a point of view. Don't just collect footage and decide in the editing room what the story is going to be. And um, uh, Some of the guys, you know, I've done four projects with the Coen brothers, you know. The, the understanding how prepared they are and how precise they are and how, again, if, if I look at the guys that I worked with that I have such great respect for, um, Alfonso Caron, Alexander Payne, um, uh, 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 you know, Soderbergh, you know, th- these directors that I just absolutely, you know, adore working with, they're all, they love what they do. And so for me, you know, Jason Reitman, the same way, they love what they do. And because of the sets are, you know, they get that we're lucky to do what we do. We're lucky. You know, I could be doing a job that was a, a, you know, a job that I'd live for the weekends. You know, for me, the weekends are a drag. I live for being on the set and being around people. I get to work with people that I have great respect for. You know, Don and I have done, I don't know how many projects. Grant and I have done everything together. 
um, uh, Matt and I've done seven or so projects. I have great respect for them. Uh, I, they're constantly growing and looking to do things and stretch and try and fail all the things that I appreciate because that's brave. You know, when Don decided to direct his first film, you know, it's a brave thing that he did and it wasn't completely received. Well, I've had that, you know, the last film I directed, I got crapped all over and it hurts when that happens, but, but it's always this constant movement forward. Gonna let's keep trying stuff. Let's push the limits. Let's, let's see, you know, where our, you know, none of those choices were safe. You know, if I'm going to go out, it's not going to be because I did, you know, the safest choices. And and all of the people that you mentioned, that's what they do. They constantly take chances and are constantly searching for, um, you know, something new. And I, you know, so I have great respect for them. I was thinking after I watched Midnight Sky, whether had you not become like a family man if you had made that movie. And it, it made me think about a couple other things, about how I'm a mother, I have two kids, so I know how drastically kids can change your life. Yeah. But I'm I'm also curious to talk about how it changes your creative life. Well, I mean, you know, I haven't acted in five years in a film, you know. I did spend a, about a year and a half on Catch-22, but in reality... You know, it was an uh, active choice to try to spend as much time as I could with them at a very specific time, which is, you know, they're three and a half or three and a quarter now. And it, it's been a very exciting time to be to watch them grow up. And you, you have kids, you know, and and also since I could, I wanted to be around. A lot of people can't. Most people, you know, I started very old. I'm like Tony Randall, you know, with kids. So, um, so I have an advantage. I've ha- I have my place financially. I'm okay. Um, I'm, you know, my mom and dad, my mom was 19 years old, you know, that's hard with no support system, no car, no nothing, you know, that's hard. So for me, it was, I had these luxuries, the ability to be around my, my family and, uh, and to spend time and say, okay, I can take a year off and just sit with these knuckleheads and see who they want to be and, you know, watch the personalities that kind of pop out. So I don't know, it, it affects me. It doesn't change the kind of jobs I like to do, you know. Um, it, it does, I mean, my daughter and son came to one sequence where I, you know, where I come, when I fall in the water, mm. we shot in a tank. Obviously, we weren't in the ice water in Iceland. So we shot in a tank, which was cold, but not, you know, ice water. And I'm in the tank in a wetsuit with my with my wardrobe on, on top of it. And my wife shows up with my two kids and I'm shooting. And I have to come out of the water and I'm all upset because, you know, I've lost this apparatus that's going to keep me alive. And <laughs> my daughter's there like, Papa, I want to come swimming with you. Right. <laughs> So now every time I say I'm going to work, she thinks I'm going to a swimming pool. <laughs> so for her, work for me is like the greatest thing on earth, swimming. <laughs> so That's... funny. Uh, well, you, you talked a little bit about this with your success and and having some failures. I'm wondering, with age, obviously comes perspective. You know, do you have a different relationship to successes and then in turn 
to failures? Failures? Yeah. Uh, probably not, unfortunately. You would think you get a little wiser about it. Um, you, you, I'm always uh, surprised at the failures and, and oftentimes hurt by them, you know. Uh, but I'm also a grown-up, you know. I can also look at things and go, well, okay, that's, you know, we'll survive it. But, um, but no, I, you know, I think if you're creative at all, you're, you're going to always be, uh, you know, susceptible to um, criticism. It, you know, it's just part of, it's part of what happens right now that there is a, a tendency for the criticism to be particularly personal and mean. It's happened, you know, society has gotten a little nastier over the last you know, since Jerry Springer, basically, you know, everybody feels like I'm just keeping it real. I'm going to tell you what I think. So they'll walk up to you and say, you know, I hate you. And you're like, oh, well, fantastic. Well, you know, I had one, one guy come up to me and he's like, you know, you, you look a lot older in person. And I was like, well, I think those extra 40 pounds look good on you. And he's like, what? And I said, I'm paying you a compliment. What are you? Um, I think that, you know, uh, criticism has a great place and it does sort of force you to, to constantly recheck and check and nobody's career is on a constant up. And I've had things that have flopped. Some of them I was surprised at and some of them that, you know, sometimes when you're really struggling through a project, you can tell, you can feel like it's missing. There's a rhythm that it's missing. Um, and those times you, you kind of, you know, those mostly happen for me as an actor. Most of those, you kind of just sit back and wait for the sirens to blow because you figure it's gonna not going to go over very well. Um, but, you know, I've also, like I've, I've made fun of Batman and Robin for years and years and years because it's a terrible film and terrible in it. I get it, you know, enough of it. But without that, the lesson that I got from that was um, you're now going to be held responsible for the movie. I, before that, it was just, I'm an actor. I got a part. I'm going to play Batman, you know, fantastic. So the idea of getting, uh, suddenly being responsible for the movie itself, you know, the next three films I did, I focused only on the script and the next three films I did were out of sight. Um, oh brother, where art thou? And um, three Kings, you know, and those are some really good screenplays and some really good movies. So there's, you know, there is good to come from failure, you know, which is to understand, you know, where you have to take responsibility and, and, you know, can either, you know, you either sit in bed and put the covers up over your head or you get up and go back to work and do your thing, mm -hmm. you know? Well, I just talking to you, I mean, you're that guy that I remember when I first moved here uh, and here is Los Angeles, obviously for anybody mm -hmm. listening, uh, you were that actor that had, you know, upteen failed pilots and, yeah. you know, the guy that, you know, was almost always going to never be. Uh, and yeah. then you hit with ER, uh, mm -hmm. kind of in middle age for an actor, really, in your yeah. mid-30s. 34, 34, yeah. 34. Uh, and the second you stepped on that small screen, it was like a supernova. You were all things to everybody. I mean, first of all, ER was the reason. It wasn't me. You know, that show, we were getting 40 million people a week watching that show. And, you know, it's just crazy. So within a week, 
we were on the cover of Newsweek, you know, suddenly we were, and we, and the big surprise was we were supposed to lose to Chicago Hope and we ended up being the big winner. So it was a shock to everybody. And, you know, it was lucky for me because I was the oldest guy on the show and I'd done 13 pilots and I'd done seven television series. And so I'd been on some successes. Roseanne was a success and Facts of Life I came on late was a success, but I've been on some pretty failed things too, you know? And so I had a real perspective. And so I was really probably no one's better prepared for it than I was. Like when the first season hit, we did 24 or 26 episodes. We did a lot of episodes that year because it was such a big hit and everybody was tired, all the actors, because it's a hard show to shoot. And we were shooting, you know, six day weeks and it was really hard. And once it was vacation time, we had two months off. Everybody's like, I, I can't wait to get this time off. And everybody got a little, you know, I got an offer for, a, you know, a movie, Dust Till Dawn. And I'm like, I'm going to do that on my time off. And I knew that I, there was going to be this one moment. You know, I knew when it was hitting and it was going well for me. And I thought, I'm not going to step off of this train until somebody pushes me off. And so for the next five years of the show, I did... I don't know, seven or eight films while I was doing the show, which meant I worked seven days a week for about five years, but I didn't mind it at all. I was still a young guy and it was exciting. And I knew, and by the end I I'd gotten to a place where I was, you know, there's a lot of, well, he's never going to make it off a of TV for a while. Cause I had Peacemaker and Batman and Robin stuff that people didn't dig. And then things started to change a little bit. And, and then I got a hit with, uh, first real hit was perfect storm which had absolutely nothing to do with me it was a big giant wave and that was the star of the movie but since i took so much shit for batman and robin i took the credit for uh, perfect storm <laughs> yeah i know i mean it's it's i think about the first time for vanity fair i was out here and we did the cast of er and friends it's like that group, i remember that right and yeah. it was everyone was brand new and jennifer aniston was like her first big role and right. it was with the who was shooting that was it uh it was annie it was annie it Lewis. was annie yeah. that's right that's and right. then you know vanity fair obviously uh I was there for every one of your covers, uh, yeah. of which were many, and and we we followed your career most certainly. And one of the most interesting moments, aside from, you know, George as the actor and George as the company man in terms of the your power and support in Hollywood, everyone looks looked to you for you were super generous with your time and with other actors and like we discussed earlier your community of actors around your community of collaborators but then came this moment of activism for you hmm. where you took a a giant step you know out of that spotlight into a bigger spotlight to come out against the Iraq war, to come out against a couple of other things and yeah. uh, dealing with the environment and dealing with um, obviously, you know, other global events like Darfur and all that stuff later on. But at that moment coming out against the war was a huge shift. I grew up in the sixties, you know, you participated in things and the war was one that, you know, it was funny because now everybody is just a natural thing of like, yeah, the war was a bad idea. But, you know, there was Sean Penn and, you know, Susan Saran and Tim Robbins and 
um, you know, uh, I don't know, 10 of us, Woody Harrelson. It was a very quiet, it was very quiet out there. And, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly did a whole half hour show about why my career was over and they orchestrated, uh, um, um, you know, boycotts of my film and actually, you know, sent a flyer around saying, you know, know, to ban these people, they're un-American and stuff uh, at the time. And, you know, and I remember calling my dad and saying, am I in trouble? And my dad said, you know, you can't demand freedom of speech and then say, but don't say bad things about me. Hmm. And he was right, of course. And so then it was like, well, then it made sense. You just go, Hmm. okay, these are fights worth picking. And I knew as time goes on, um, I wasn't going to be on the wrong side of that one mm-hmm. in history. And, you know, and I, I've always felt like, you know, my father particularly made it a point when I was a very young kid to say, always pick fights with people who are more powerful than you and always look out for people who are less powerful, period. That's the, that if there's anything I was taught in my household, it was that. And I believe in it. I think it works. You know, it's not always the most comfortable position. Um, there were plenty of times when my father would, you know, get angry at somebody that I would go, can't you just ignore it? Can't you just let it go? Um, and now I'm proud that he didn't, but at the time at 10 years old, I'd like to have finished, you know, we didn't eat dinner out very often. I'd like to have finished dinner. (laughs) Well, you, you have, um, you know, you've been a really uh, a role model with that. You put your money where your mouth is most certainly. And also where you're. Uh, creatively, I mean, I still haven't recovered from Good Night and Good Luck. Uh, mm. That film, that that film holds up right now. I mean, it's pretty amazing to hear that Murrow speech again now. It says, "We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason." If we dig deep in our history and remember that we are not, you know, we are not the children of men who feared to 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 speak against I'm, I'm misquoting it now uh, uh, those those who were for the moment uh popular to hear um you know those words you know i wrote good night and good luck because i was being called a traitor to my country you know and i was mad um mad is often a good place to work from you know is there a particular film that made you want to be a director well there's a couple um out of sight made me want to be a director because I worked with Steven Soderbergh and I suddenly realized now I'd always thought about directing because in television, you know, there's a possibility you could just say, hey, let me direct a couple episodes. But Steven showed, you know, Steven was bringing back all the lessons that we learned from the movies from like 1964 to 1976, all the sort of, you know, really specific, really interesting uh, studio films that were, that were still doing a lot of nonlinear storytelling. And he was in, infusing with all the 90s um, independent film stuff that he was so famous for. And he was bringing that into the studio system and working in a way that I just loved. And I thought, oh, well, we don't, it, you know, you don't have to tell stories in a straight line and you don't have to. Um, uh, I, so immediately that, told me Stevens, my relationship with Steven told me that I wanted to be a filmmaker and Steven and I became partners because he said, when I would give him notes as an actor, I wouldn't give him notes 
about my performance. I'd give him notes on like what's working in the scene and what isn't. And so he always encouraged me to, to direct. Um, the movie that most inspired me about storytelling was Network. It's just a, you know, it's a perfect film. And everything Patty Chayesky wrote about in 1975, came out in 76, um, everything he wrote about came true. You know, everything, the idea that there is no United States, there is no Soviet Union, there is only Exxon, you know, and IBM, and all the, 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 that the, the newsman could be the entertainer and that uh, there would be reality television, you know, in the way that they used it as a, everything he wrote about came true, but he did it so beautifully, you know, hmm. so beautifully. Yeah. So those were, you know. I, I think of that, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. People say that and the generation doesn't even know what it's from. <laughs> no, it's funny. It's like when we did Catch-22, you know, generations don't understand that that was just a thing he made up, that Heller made up. You know, Catch-22, at first it was Catch-17 and then there was Stalag-17, so he changed yeah. it to Catch. You know, it's a funny thing. I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I did a funny bit when we did Out of Sight. The only thing I improvised in Out of Sight was that line because we're talking about that movie in the trunk of a car with Jen, Jennifer Lopez. And, uh, and I said to Stephen, I want to quote it, but I want to get it wrong because it's such a famous quote. And he's like, okay. So I go, yeah, 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 like the Peter Finch. And she goes, yeah. And I go, yeah. And I go, yeah. Uh, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take any more of your shit. <laughs> Just because it made me laugh to get it as wrong as you possibly could. Every everybody knows that line. Oh, that's yeah. so funny. Um, all right, I always ask everybody this question that I talk to, and since we are in an ever changing world, obviously, and in currently in Hollywood, especially in an ever changing business, and it's changed dramatically since when you were, you know, auditioning. Right. In, sure. the, in the 80s, 90s, whatever. Uh, what advice do you have for young people wanting to get into filmmaking or television, either in front of the camera, behind the camera or to be any part of that community? Well, I mean, there's some easy things to understand. You know, when I was a young actor and I would go in. I would always just pray that they'd like me. You know, I go into audition, just like me. I, and then I'd be, just don't screw it up. Don't, please don't, just make sure you don't screw it up. You know, I just want to. And then as you get older and you're sitting now on the couch as the actors would come in to audition, you realize that I'm sitting there on the couch going, please be the person to solve my problem. You know, please f make me so I can go home. You know, let me, let me get the right person that makes me happy. And the understanding that you're there to solve their problem as opposed to, you know, please like me is such a difference in a change in attitude like that can change your performance light, light years. I mean, it's just it, it, people sit up in the chair and they hear you when you come in and you go, how you doing? Am I reading with you? Great. I got this idea. Let me try it out. That You can feel the confidence in the room. You can feel it. I, I said this to young actors before because. The reality is this, actors are constantly going, I, I just don't want to lose this job, right? Well, you can't lose something you don't have. You can't lose it, right? So every time you're going on an audition, every time you're going into these meetings, it's all house money you're playing with. The only thing different from the time you walk into the time you walk out, 
The only thing that would be different would be that you got the job, which would be fantastic and a miracle. Otherwise, everything is status quo. So there is no, you can't lose anything. So do exactly what you want. Take chances, uh, stick your neck out. You know, I would bring, you know, once I started to figure that out, I would bring in like a a dog. I I remember reading for family ties and I brought in a dog and held it under my arm. It was for three lines and family ties. And I held a dog under my arm and I just said all the lines without even referencing the dog, just talking. And they were howling and laughing. And, you know, once you realize that, you know, you can change the rules, you know, in, in to benefit you in a way, uh, now, listen, I've been dead wrong. I remember I went in and I did a drunk scene for uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola for uh, the vampire movie he did, Dracula. And I did it really drunk scene because I, I knew this. My uncle was a bad drunk. So I did my uncle. He was like, ha! And I did this really big thing. And literally Coppola is staring at me like I like I had three heads. And it was over. He called my agent and he says, I think he was drunk. <laughs> which I took as a compliment, but you know, I didn't get the job obviously. Um, so, but you know, again, it's like take chances, stick your neck out. You can't lose something you don't have. And it, once you look at it that way, it changes the way you approach everything. It changes the way you approach directing. It changes the way you approach getting jobs. It changes the way you approach life. And I, you know, once I, I got to that point, everything changed for me and it was, it makes a big difference. Hmm. Well, speaking of house money, uh, is there any chance I'm going to see the oceans uh, team meet with the oceans eight team? Am I, is there going to be any kind of like camp merger between the two? Is it something I can hope for? (laughs) We had an idea where it's just the guys screwing over the girls and girls screwing over the guys. Um, I don't know. You know, I would love it. You know, um, the fun way to do it would be to do it like, um, oh, what was that movie uh, with uh, um, G- George Burns um, going in style, you know, make it like all the things we used to do just don't work anymore. <laughs> you know, if we're hanging off a wire. It's like we throw our backs out, you know, all of that. Kind of stuff. I think that'd be the fun way to do it. Um, I don't know. You know, Warner Brothers wants us to do something like that. Um, it'd be down the road. I got a bunch of stuff to do now. And I think it, the only way it work is if, it, if we got older and it was funnier and weirder. Um, but Sandy's a good friend and, you know, we, we'd have a blast doing it because she's, she's terrific. We'll see. Maybe I'm, yeah, I never say never on stuff like that because there might be a world where it could, it could, you know, it, it would make sense to do. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you so much for your time, George, and congratulations on the film. It's just stunning and a, and a must-see and really thought-provoking and entertaining at the same time. So I thank you for that. We're really proud of it. So um, thanks for saying that. Thanks so much for joining me. The Midnight Sky is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.